We start with our great B.C. housing debate. Premier David Eby, soon to be sworn in as Premier, says affordable housing will be a top priority for his NDP government. But the Liberal opposition not buying that. They're saying his policies will not work. And check this out. Now the Liberals are saying the New Democrats are a bunch of hypocrites. Why? Because they say a lot of NDP MLAs are property speculators. Have a listen to this. This is from the legislature earlier this week. Liberal MLA Mike Bernier here. Have a listen. NDP MLAs in this house actually own 102 properties and 95% of that caucus own properties not only just around BC, some of them hidden in uh, private trusts and numbered companies, but also have properties everywhere from Halifax in the United States to properties in Mexico. Uh, Since the last election alone, the NDP have profited by over $8 million in their own personal real estate deals. Okay, the New Democrats gritting their teeth through that when they were not happy with that. Let's discuss it now. we got both sides of it for you. Peter Millibar on the line, Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on again. Andrew Mercier is the NDP MLA for Langley. Andrew, thank you for coming on again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Andrew, let me go to you first. When you listen to this attack by the Liberals this week, calling you guys a bunch of real estate speculators, what went through your mind? Well, look, Mike, I think it's about uh, actions are louder than words, and it's about what are you actually doing to support people during the housing crisis. Like, I'm a renter. I'm a millennial. I lived through a B.C. Liberal government, and I'm living through an NDP government right now, and I see the difference. And when I see sitting through legislative debate on action to help renters like a rent freeze during the pandemic and everyone on that side stands up and says um, freezing rents helping renters is the wrong thing to do that to me speaks volumes okay peter millibar what do you say to that well i I would love to find the hansard transcript where we've said that so that's uh patently not true first off uh secondly uh the reality is the ndp paint uh, anyone that sells uh real estate as as evil speculators that have driven up prices. Uh, David Eby um, decided to sell his condo at $150,000 profit, which is fine. That's what happens with market prices. He didn't, uh, you know, fall on his sword and tell the new buyer, oh, no, I'm only going to sell it for what I paid for it. Uh, that's the point of all this. They, they lecture everyone else. And then at the height of the housing market, uh, which is driven up in price under David Eby's watch as housing minister, record high prices, they start cashing in by selling off $8.5 million worth of their holdings, which isn't even all of their holdings. That's the incredible part. They still have uh, uh, tons of other investment properties in there. And so, how, many, how, many liberal, how many liberal MLAs hold uh, multiple real estate properties and have flipped them for profits? Nowhere near the same. Nowhere near the same number. I know really? myself personally. No, I, I I know my own situation. I have my my personal home, and I have a shared uh, uh, recreational property that's been in my family since before I was born with my siblings. Um, you know, people. But the bottom line is this: our our caucus doesn't go around lecturing people for having the temerity uh, of making a dollar um, when they sell a piece of property. I don't know how the NDP think we're going to add to housing supply if they think uh, people that build houses, people that invest in housing, should do it all at a loss. It it simply defies logic. Andrew Mercier, what do you say to that? Yeah, I'd say a few things. First, what I'd say just about in terms of Hansard transcripts is go back and check the record, Mike. The fact of the matter is that almost every liberal MLA that stood up to the rent freeze debate stood up and said, this is unfair, and that's on the record. Now, I'd just say, uh, you know, quickly, 
in terms of um, in terms of the Liberal caucus, look, we have 57 NDP MLAs that sold eight properties since 2020. The Liberals have two that have sold eight properties since that time. But that's not what it's about. What it's about here is what action can we take on this? We need to fast track the building of homes. Mm-hmm. David Eby's plan is going to do that. Now, if you look at BC Housing and the housing hub model, we've put $2 billion into BC Housing to finance the creation of affordable renting rentals, specifically so developers don't have to take a wash on their profits. So if you're building low-cost rental or affordable rental, yeah. you can get a 0% to a low-interest loan. And I've got a project down the street from my office that is funded by Housing Hub, being built by a private developer that's going to bring 62 new affordable units to Langley. Okay, let me play, Peter, I know you want to respond to that. Let me fit in a quick clip here, just to be fair to the other side here. Now, here's what BC Housing Minister Murray Rankin had to say about the attacks that you guys have leveled this week, saying, oh, the NDP MLAs are are flipping properties themselves. He says that the government is building thousands of affordable homes for British Columbians. Here's what he had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. uh, NDP Housing Minister Murray Rankin here. We are on track to spend $7 billion over 10 years through BC Housing. And we're on track to do that now, and we're on track to deliver those 114,000 homes. Okay, so he says they're spending billions of dollars in in affordable housing. Peter Millibar, what's your point here? Are you saying they should be spending billions more, or what do you think they should be doing? No, our point is really the results that actually matter, and, and the reality is six years into their housing plan, uh, a 10-year housing plan, they've only delivered 6% of the units. And so uh, that's CMHA uh, housing, or CMHC numbers. Those aren't our numbers. These are from other third-party reports. Um, their housing plan is not working. Um, it's really about us trying to shine a light on the hypocrisy here of how they try to uh, over-politicize and, and weaponize uh, some of what happens on a daily basis in the real estate market. And they, they try to make everyone a villain uh, that's in it and then think that these people are going to want to openly work with government how, how do they, in the long term. How do they do that? Are, are you talking about David Eby's promised anti-flipping tax? Is that what you're talking well, about? Well, let, let's look at that. So they, they try taking a rip at our, our critic, uh, Mike Bernier, calling him, uh, you know, the flipping tax, uh, uh, and that would be uh, impacting him. Well, in fact, uh, David Eby's own flipping tax would not have impacted what Mike is doing. Mike has a company, a contracting company, set up, which would be exempt from the flipping tax in the first place. Secondly, he's buying up old uh, rundown crack shacks that are boarded up, uh, remodeling them, selling them back to the market at an affordable price for young families, uh, barely making a profit on them uh, when you net everything out. And instead okay. of uh, recognizing that, the government tried to weaponize it. And so what do you think that does to all the other contractors out there thinking how they're going to be received and, by this government? NDP MLA Andrew Mercier, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Mike. What I would say is, look, we're living through the greatest housing crisis of a generation, probably uh, probably historically. We had 100,000 people come to British Columbia last year, and that's a good thing because we have more jobs than people right now. But there is a huge demand for housing. I see it personally in my life. I'm a renter, uh, you know, and I've got two kids. And when I signed my lease, um, my wife and I were told by our landlord it's being rented out because of the speculation and vacancy tax. That created 20,000 new units. Now, you know, respectfully, this is not about whether or not liberal MLAs have hurt feelings about comments in the legislature. This is about whether or not we have a plan that is delivering for people. David Eby has a plan. 
um, it's you're right. going to see you're going to see significant significant action and a significant acceleration of housing in this province. And I couldn't be more proud to be part of a government that's going to do that because it is desperately needed. There is twice the number of homes under construction right now than when Kevin Falcon was the Minister of Finance. Peter, last word. Go ahead, real quick. Well, I mean, they keep going back 13 years. Um, It's it's quite remarkable. It's like the province hasn't grown in that time and things haven't changed. Um, The reality is they've had six years. It's been a failure. Uh, Rents are at an all-time high, $1,200 a month more now for rent in in Vancouver for the average apartment than it was when uh, David Eby took office. Um, You know, this was just simply not sustainable. Uh, the facts are there for people. This is the most unaffordable housing market we have ever seen, uh, and this is all under right. their watch. So to think he's got a magic wand he's going to wave when he finally gets around to actually getting himself sworn in and maybe gracing us with his presence in the legislature, um, you know, is quite astounding that they have that much okay. confidence. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for a good discussion. As Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA, Andrew Mercier, NDP MLA. All right, let's talk about Vancouver's collapsed Olympics bid now. This was billed as the first Indigenous-led bid for the 2030 Winter Olympic Games. It was backed by local First Nations. The Lilwat, Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations were all on board with this. It has all fallen apart now. The province announcing yesterday they are out of here. The government will not support it. Too expensive. I've got Tsleil-Waututh Chief Jen Thomas standing by. First, have a listen here to BC Tourism Minister Lisa Baer. The current bid is cost estimated at $1.2 billion and an additional billion dollars in risk. And when we weigh that about against our government priorities, we believe we need to focus on people. Okay, First Nations disappointed with this decision to say the least. They've got a news conference scheduled later this morning. But first, we, let's talk first now to Jen Thomas, elected chief of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation. Chief Thomas, thank you for coming on today. Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. How did you find out about this decision yesterday? How was it communicated to you? Uh, well, actually, Minister Bear invited us to a meeting on uh, Monday morning. So that's when they broke the news to the nations. And, uh, you know, then it was still pretty hard to hear and very disheartening to what learn. Was- what was that like? When you went into that meeting, did you have a bad feeling it was going to be bad news? Well, we caught wind of it Friday that this decision was coming. So, mm. you know, it, we weren't that surprised, but still, it you know, we left with pretty heavy hearts. Yeah, how do you feel about it? Uh, I'm very disappointed. I feel that we weren't respected enough to have that government-to-government discussion. You know, we invited the province to join our table. What happened is they took their chairs away from our table, had their own discussion, and made this decision with no conversation with the nations. I know Minister Baer also said, you know, they've been talking with us, but it wasn't at the government-to-government level. Okay, well, let's have a listen to another another clip here from the minister. I'll get your get your thoughts, Jen. This is Tourism Minister Lisa Bear. Once again, she was speaking yesterday. Government had to take a look at that bid and weigh it, uh, its costs, its risks, its potential benefits against government priorities like healthcare, like public safety, like uh, um, you know, investing in the cost of living. Okay, uh, Chief Thomas, what do you say to her? Like, you know, a lot of people are 
It seems to me a lot of people are agreeing with her and saying, like, maybe this was the wrong time to put this much money into the Olympics. What do you say to that? Yeah. The, the province didn't have to put in that much money. There was a lot of private funding added to this cost. And, you know, if we were able to have that discussion face-to-face with them, they would have understood where most of the money was coming from, where some of the money was coming from. But we didn't even have that chance to have a meaningful discussion to share that info with them. Okay, that's interesting. Like she said yesterday that this was they were looking at 1.2 billion dollars. She also talked about a, a another billion dollars being at risk. Are you, are you saying those numbers are not correct? Um at the technical level, uh, I can, I cannot say, but I know there was a lot of funding sources coming in. Yes. Hmm. What do it you was, say? It wasn't th- all on the province. I have a feeling that when we open the phone lines here after the, a break, that most of the callers will phone in and say that this is the right decision, that, you know, the last time we hosted the Olympic Games, it, it was great, it was a lot of fun, it was a big success, but when you look at this economy right now, inflation, people having trouble making ends meet, like it's just the wrong priority right now. What, what, what do you say to that argument? You know, um, if the province had the discussion with us and we were able to come to that decision together, yeah. we would be okay with it. But we didn't even have the chance to have that discussion again. You know, yeah. so we'll, we would accept it, but we're just upset at the process. Yeah. And are you surprised at that? Like when you went into this, did you, did you expect to get deeply into these discussions with the, with the government rather than have this happen? Yeah. We wanted to yeah. have the discussion with them, okay. and we were denied the journey of that. Okay, is that is this the is this the death knell for this Olympics bid now, or do you have any other cards you can play, or is that it? It's over. I, th- I think this is it. Yeah. How how are your people feeling like that? Like, what are you hearing from your people? Uh, well, we learned ten minutes before the statement was coming out yesterday, so we did a yeah. quick. Uh, thing to our members Uh, i did get a few text messages from our elders saying it's pretty sad you know but yeah our our community was pretty excited about it and uh now we have to figure out what's next yeah do do the first nations involved here feel disrespected by the government the way this was handled No, I don't. Okay, I don't. Uh, Jen, are you Chief Thomas? Are you still there? Yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. I got yeah. blocked from some buildings here in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. I was. I was just. My last question for you is like, for the First Nations who were involved in this, do you, would you say you feel disrespected with the way this was handled? Yes, very disrespected. All right. Okay, Chief Thomas. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, I think she's having a little trouble hearing me there. I do appreciate her time there. Elected Chief Jen Thomas. Slaywatooth First Nation. I greatly appreciate her time today. Let's check in with Rob Livingstone now. Rob is a, biz, a sports business journalist with GamesBids.com. He follows all the ins and outs of these Olympic Games bids. Rob, thank you for coming on today. No problem. Good morning. Rob, what do you think about this decision? Does this surprise you at all? Well, we knew uh, that there was going to be some hurdles getting that government support at the various levels. I mean, it was pretty sudden uh, there wasn't a lot of warning especially as a uh, chief thomas i just heard described that that this was 
coming so quick and suddenly without that kind of discussion that that was expected. So um, in that way, it was surprising. But, um, you know, the, there, there was no guarantee that this funding was coming. Yeah. Is it typical for like a city that has hosted an Olympic Games in the past when we had the 2010 Games? Do you think that would have been like um, advantageous for another bid for Vancouver, given that, you know, there's a considerable amount of infrastructure already in place here for another Games? Well, that's exactly it. The infrastructure in place. That's where the IOC is looking right now. There aren't any there aren't too many new cities out there to bring the Olympics to that don't have facilities. So that's why they're looking at places like uh, Salt Lake City and uh, Sapporo in Japan, both have hosted before, and other places, including, uh, of course, Vancouver. So a big yeah. advantage, and, and the IOC is taking quite a hit, probably more so than Olympic fans in Vancouver over this decision. Really? Why is that? Well, uh, the IOC is down to, you know, it was a, it was a really a two-horse race between uh, Vancouver and Sapporo. Now, Sapporo's running into problems because of the uh, bribery scandal related to Tokyo 2020. Um, the bid is a little tainted now in Japan. Uh, so those hurdles will oh. be crossed. And uh, Salt Lake City is really targeting 2034 because Los Angeles is getting the 28 summer games. They want to build some space in between. Right now, there would only be 18 months between those winter and summer games should Salt Lake City get it. So Vancouver was kind of that backup plan, that security net, mm. I, I might say. And, and it's gone. So the IOC has some uh, thinking to do. Okay, that's that's very interesting context there. So it sounds like, would you say if this bid had gone forward from Vancouver, they would have had a, a pretty darn good shot at winning it? Definitely, uh, definitely, they were in the running, and yeah. it really would, pe- it would decide how Sapporo handled this crisis, um, which isn't really a good look for the IOC right now. What's happening in, in uh, Japan? Yeah, so Vancouver was right in there. <clears throat> Are you hearing anything about Alberta or Calgary possibly looking at a, a potential bid? Well, definitely. I mean, I've chatted with some people in Calgary just this morning. Um, I think it's a little too late. Uh, the IOC is hoping to narrow this down either late this year or early next spring um, to some finalists and make their election next October. Um, I don't know that Calgary could scramble quickly enough. I mean, it would really be up to the Canadian Olympic Committee. I'm interested in hearing what they say later today um, with the First Nations in that press conference if they're going to look another direction or if they're just going to wait until perhaps 2034. All right. Talking about the collapsed Olympic speed with my guest Rob Livingston, and there's a ton of phone calls here. Brian in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, again, Mike. Um, I think this is a mistake. We need the Olympics because the tourism industry was decimated by COVID, and we're about to enter a recession. And this is eight years from now. What matters today does not matter in eight years. Okay, it's an interesting argument. Uh, Rob, what do you think of that? Like, when people talk about the the economic shot in the arm, the Olympics will give a, well, give a host city. Go ahead. I mean, if you look back at the 2010 games, you know, they bid for those in 2002, 2003, where the economy wasn't that strong at that point. So 10 years later, you know, things do change. It's a, that is a good point, and you've got to do yeah. some uh, looking ahead. Josh in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. What do you think? Hey, hey guys, you know, I, I can totally understand the First Nation uh, group's frustration and maybe how the result of, you know, canceling it was put in front of them. But, like, we have people dying in emergency rooms. We have a huge homeless problem. Like, I think the NDP definitely made the right decision here uh, because we're not ready for this. And spending more money right now, it's just not the time to do it. 
But uh, for future Olympics, I think that uh, First Nations groups have a great platform and uh, it might be something to look into when the city is more prepared for it. But it's not the time right now. Josh, thank you for the call. We're hearing a lot about inflation, the the difficult economy the world faces right now. There are a lot of fears about a, a worldwide recession here, Rob. Like, would you say that this dicey economy right now is the reason there's such a short list that the IOC has for someone to host these games? Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah, definitely the economy is one. A lot of cities uh, don't really want to uh, invest or guarantee those funds. I mean, for the winter games, there's a climate crisis too, and a lot of cities aren't sure whether they're going to have the snowfall or that kind of thing for in uh, seven, eight years' time. So yeah, a lot of factors. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Mike. I think uh, Chief Thomas said it perfectly. It, I can't say if it's a good idea or a bad idea. At least, at least consult the band as to where the funding comes from. Because if you can privately fund a, a, a large majority of that, just see where the cost falls. And to me, there's a secondary conversation, which is indicative of government, where they talk out both sides of their mouth. They, they, they had no intention of consulting with her. Like, I'm Indigenous. I have a medical tech company here locally that builds a product that isn't built in Canada, and our government won't talk to me. And I'm, I'm, we're trying to get our product to market. But poor Chief Thomas, like, give them the platform. Talk to them. See what, see what the numbers look like. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Okay. Thank you for that call. Yeah. And, Rob, you know, this is a government that has made reconciliation with Indigenous people and First Nations a very high priority. Are you surprised at the way this was handled? Yeah, it's not a good look. I mean, so the bid is dead right now, but I mean, we'll see whether it can be resurrected. I know the, the IOC is very creative in, in what they can work with, and, and as I mentioned before, they're kind of in a bad spot here. They're desperate. Um, uh, you know, maybe there's a plan that can be worked through. I don't know the provincial government there that well, but, you know, things aren't set in stone. There can be a lot of creativity here. Maybe maybe there's a chance. Mm. Hmm, okay, Ravinder calling in North Delta. Hi. Hi there. I just want to say that I'm happy that the Olympics uh, bid has been cancelled um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, I, I want to say I've followed the Olympics all my life. My wife has been on the uh, Canadian national team as a sprinter. Um, wow. We were never put uh, a plebiscite. We, I think the process was flawed from the beginning. People should have been allowed uh, a vote to find out if the general public wanted it. The only people that win on this are special interest groups, the IOC. We lose federally, provincially, municipally, as tax bases, as a, a tax-faring base. We lose. Do you, do, you think that's what, do you think that's what happened in 2010 when we hosted the Olympics that year that we, that we lost? I still think we lost money. We still didn't get the full picture. It was uh, rah, rah, rah. Uh, I think we came very close to being uh, the perfect um, situation for an Olympic bid, but I don't think the Olympic Committee in this day and age is as um, forthright and honest, and they're in for the money. Okay, thanks for the call. Rob, Rob, you know, the 2010 games were told basically, I guess, officially broke even i guess but some people don't believe it what do you say when, when you hear people say that that the costs are people don't get the true picture of the cost what do you think of that you know it's 
you know, I don't think anybody really knows how those numbers pan out at the end. And, and there might be a loss there. There might be a surplus. Probably not. I think you have to look at the legacy of what you got out of it. I mean, obviously, yeah. people don't want to lose money and spend a lot of money. But, but where are you? Are you better off after the games than you were before? I think that's what you got to look at. Rob, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about long COVID now. So these are symptoms that can hang around for weeks, sometimes months. We're still learning more about this condition. Had some requests from listeners to cover this topic. I've heard from a lot of listeners who have had a bad bout of COVID and they've had a long path to recovery as well. And a personal note, I had COVID myself uh, about the start of this month. I got really sick. I was down. I was down really sick for about three days, and then it's been a, it's been a long recovery. I've been testing negative here the last couple of weeks, but still kind of battling some uh, residual sort of symptoms. I would say I, I feel like I'm luckier than a lot of people though, who go through some pretty brutal experiences with long COVID. I got Jason Tetro standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this here. This is what is long COVID. Let's listen to uh, Dr. Natalie Azar here. She's speaking on the Today Show. Have a listen to this here. This is the first time we've had so many millions of people experiencing this kind of situation. Okay. So according to the CDC, and by the way, there's no globally expect, um, uh, accepted definition of long COVID, but it's symptoms that last typically for one month or longer after the onset of your illness. No alternative diagnosis. So of course, you have to rule other things out. Um, the symptoms can go away and then come back. A lot of people don't I've even have some of the symptoms early on and then five months later develop things. Um, the cause is unknown, and we have here immune response, which is a little bit of a catch-all, Jacob, because experts are trying to figure out so much what's going on. Is there a persistent virus there? Is there a persistent triggering of the immune system? Is there organ damage? There's a whole like immune milieu that's happening that, that researchers are studying. Okay. All right. Let's discuss long COVID now with my guest, Jason Tetro. Jason is a microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. And I recommend his super awesome science show, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, it's always good to be joining you. Yeah, for sure. And when you heard that definition there, that discussion of long COVID in, in the clip we played, is that is that pretty consistent with your understanding of like what the symptoms are like or what or how you can define it? Yeah, I mean, when you look at it from um, just as sort of an umbrella uh, aspect, because you have all these different systems that are being affected, the neurological in some, the cardiovascular in some, the, the, the kidneys in some, um, what you realize is that they all seem to have some link back to uh, the immune system or inflammation. And then that has a link back to what COVID or SARS-CoV-2 does to you when it actually infects you. So essentially saying that something that's lasting for more than a month is, is probably a good way of looking at long COVID, where we start getting into the details of exactly how this is happening. Well, that's still something that people are figuring out. Uh, but what I can tell you is that imbalance is probably the most likely cause. It's just what are we imbalancing? Yeah, would you say that if if we look at people who are suffering from these long-term symptoms that hang around, like, mm -hmm. is it typically people who have been really, really sick at the beginning of COVID when they first get sick? Like, mm -hmm. maybe some people end up in 
in hospital? Is is it those people who are typically having the longer symptoms, or can you have a can you have like a milder case of COVID and still have symptoms hang around for a long, long time? Oh yeah, no, it's it's everybody. Everybody is at risk of long COVID, and and the reason is this: um, when you get an infection, all right, there is going to be an imbalance that happens. And depending on how your individual um, immune system responds to that infection, that imbalance could be either in inflammation, which is mainly what we're focusing on with respect to long COVID, or it could be an antibody response, or it could be in T-cell response. I mean, there's a number of different types of immune responses, and based on how your body does that response, you're going to have different types of symptoms where we start getting into this idea of a long COVID is that if you have either antibodies or maybe even T cells, those go away probably within two to three weeks after you've cleared something. I mean, that's just the way it works. But if you go into inflammation, inflammation can go on for months and months and even into years. And that's where we start running into the problems because every time you have inflammation, there's going to be damage done to your body. And then if you have any kind of comorbidities like diabetes or, or, or high blood pressure or anything like that, that's only going to get made worse. And then as you go on further and further and further, you're essentially just having more damage. And, and eventually you get to a point where, you know, you really can't do much anymore. And this is where yeah. a lot of people who have had long COVID for several months are. And, and it's, it's tough. Yeah, let's talk about some of the the symptoms that people are reporting here, Jason. Like one of the things mm-hmm. I've been reading about is like extreme fatigue that seems to hang yeah. around, almost like chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, exactly. And so when you start talking about chronic fatigue or any kind of fatigue, it's related to one particular type of immune response. We call it the uh, TH17 or IL-17 response. And essentially what it means is that your body is constantly being prepared to be attacked And so it's just using up all of this energy just to be on guard. It's like a cold war, if you will. And unfortunately, you can't really turn that off until you have a particular imbalance inside of you um, restored. And that can take several months because, again, that inflammation is really what is putting your body on guard, waiting for for whatever's supposed to come, even though it never actually comes. Okay, how about... Yeah, I've heard this thing about COVID brain or brain fog yeah. re- related to related to COVID, and, and I was I was worried that something like that was happening to me because mm-hmm. I, I for about a week I was feeling I was feeling a little a little kind of groggy, um, even yeah. though I st- yeah. even though I had started testing uh, negative. I'll, I'll tell you though, I feel a heck of a lot better though now. It's sort of thankfully it's, that part of it's kind of cleared up for mm-hmm. me. Tell me about the the brain fog. Right. So when you have inflammation inside of the body, it is going to have an effect on your uh, on your brain, uh, essentially your entire nervous system. But, you know, let's just focus on the brain for a second here. Now, there are different types of cells that are inside your brain that are responsible for helping you to make sure that there are no infections. And if all of a sudden it starts to feel like there's an infection there, it will turn on um, all of these different types of chemicals. We call them cytokines. And when those cytokines start forming inside the brain, and they've got you know weird names like um, MCP1 or GAFP or whatever, what happens is that they turn off some of the processes that occur in your brain, and that makes you feel like you have 
less or, or, or less cognitive function, as they like to say, but it, you know, basically it's brain fog. Um, and then what happens is as the inflammation goes down, then you start to regain that balance in the brain and you start to feel better. Now, when I had COVID uh, a number of months ago, I had the brain fog probably for about two weeks, which meant that I yeah. probably had a really good T-cell response. And then after that, I was okay. Um, that's because I was vaccinated, but totally different thing. Um, but for people who may not have been vaccinated or people who have high inflammation problems, that brain fog could actually end up lasting months. And I've actually known people who have had that type of brain fog for six months. And, and in one case, um, it was like almost a year. And it, it's so difficult because there's nothing you can do about it. Speaking to Jason Tetro about long COVID, what about treatment? What can, can if people are suffering through this, is there anything they can do mm -hmm. to make it better? Well, at this point, we don't even know the exact cause of the imbalance. So it's very, very difficult. And so what you have to do now is you try and find what exactly is that cause. Now, the thing is, is that if we can identify the cause, then there's a very good likelihood we'll be able to identify some kind of treatment or therapy. So, for example, and I am using a hypothetical here, so please don't call your doctor and ask for this. If it is an imbalance in what we call the renin-angiotensin system, then there are way there are medications that can actually help to balance that out. But I don't know, actually no one knows whether or not the renin angiotensin system is the trigger point. So we're still at the stage of figuring out what is the, 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 the trigger that allows for this to happen. And then once we do that, then we can start looking at how we can treat the source. In the meantime, what we are essentially stuck with is mitigation measures based on the symptoms that we're seeing. So if you're having cardiovascular problems, you may end up with some heart medications. You know, if you're talking about renal, there may be some kidney medications. Uh, so you're, you're basically just, you know, trying to manage what is happening inside. But we hopefully within the next year, we'll have a much better understanding of what that trigger is. Okay. And if you're fully vaccinated, you touched briefly on this, are you less mm -hmm. susceptible to long COVID? Yeah. So if you happen to have been vaccinated, then what's going to end up happening is that you may still get infected, um, as we all yeah, know, sure. but most likely you're going to not have a serious infection unless you literally have no immune response. And we, you know, we hear about people who are extremely elderly going through this problem. They've had all their vaccines, but unfortunately their immune system is just not strong enough. But for the majority of individuals out there, if you've been vaccinated, at least the, the, you know, the first two and then a booster, then there's a very low likelihood that you may end up with long COVID. The other thing is that when you look at the different um, variants of concern, the different Greek letters, if you will, Delta really led to a lot of that long COVID. Omicron doesn't seem to be doing so much, even though it's still happening. All right, we're talking long COVID with my guest, Jason Tetro. Lots of phone calls. Ted on the line in Nanaimo. Hi, Ted, go ahead. Hello, how are you? Hi. I'm good, go ahead. Um, I've been dealing with long COVID now for 18 months. I was sick um, February 2021 when it first started. Uh, if I went for a 10-minute walk with my dogs, I'd have to go home and sleep for a good four hours. Oh, um, man. It uh, slowly kind of has gotten better, but I think it's more just learning how to deal with it. I've had the exhaustion side of things as well as the brain fog. Uh, now when I'm working, I might be able to get about two, three hours of work in before I just have to stop. You can 
you can tell I'm I'm kind of de- not degenerating, but uh, in terms of how I'm talking in meetings or with my staff and stuff, uh, that I, I it's definitely evident when I have to stop and then just go home and rest and such. Um, unfortunately, there's very little out there. The doctors did all their tests and find little to nothing wrong with you. Um, insurance companies tend to bail on people and, uh, and you're left to just try and fumble your way through it. Um, I've been on, I guess, on a wait list for a COVID to go to a COVID clinic since I believe January, but haven't heard anything from anyone. And then I'm still dealing with the, the issues. Ted, thank you for sharing your story. I, I wish you a return to full health. I'm sorry for your struggles there. Jason, what do you think? I mean, this is something that we are hearing about more often because when that first infection happens, um, then you may end up having that massive imbalance, that massive shift. And when that occurs and you go into that inflammatory profile, as I said, it can take numerous months. What we haven't really understood is whether or not you can bring down the inflammation, but still end up having the symptoms. And this is what it sounds like, because if the blood tests are coming back and they seem to be normal, you don't have high white blood cell counts, you don't have high TNF counts, you don't have high IL-6 counts, then it's the body essentially having been given an, a trauma or an insult, and it's trying to find its way to come back. Um, you know, this is what we see in people who have actually, who have had other types of traumas like strokes and heart attacks. It takes right. many, many years for them to be able to come back. So. Could this possibly be the, the, the reason behind this long COVID? Again, until we know what that trigger point happens to be, um, all, all I can say is, you know, I, I just hope that the rest and, and, and time will, will help um, him to get better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's go to Bill on the line in Langley. Hi, Bill, go ahead. Hey, thank you. Very much like the first fella, I've, uh, I contracted original COVID a year and a half ago and darn near died from it. I had a fever for three weeks. I couldn't function, couldn't walk. It was really bad and got to the point of a couple months later where I returned to work and part-time. And here we are a year and a half down the road and same kind of thing. I, you know, my overall cognitive functions of left and right um, don't make sense anymore. And I, I find I've lost a lot. It's almost like I got old overnight, but um frustrating part is I've seen cardiologists, respiratory therapists, and the doctors all say it's fine, still have chest pain. Um, and yeah, my doctor's since retired, so I'm kind of lost. And uh, this was contracted through work and WorkSafe BC accepted my claim, and they can't tell me anything. So, you know, it's just one of those things you, you want to feel better, you want to be able to function, and uh, you're stuck. Bill, thank you for <clears throat> thank you for sharing your story, and I also wish you a, a return to to full health. And we're talking about life changing, uh, life altering experiences here that people are describing. Jason, Jason, we guys only got thirty seconds left here. Sadly, go ahead. Essentially, um, as you heard, you know the, these are infections that were occurring with um, the alpha uh, and, and also with the delta. Um, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where unfortunately we are 
at a point where hopefully thing with the vaccinations and with and with it being Omicron, we're not going to have as many. But we can't just leave these people behind, as you've just heard. Yeah. That seems to be happening. We cannot do that. We need to be focusing more on the research and to find out what that trigger is. And then to make sure that we're taking care of these individuals until we have an answer. Otherwise, we're letting everybody down. Jason, thanks for coming on. we got more calls coming in. I'd love to have you back on to talk about this important issue. And uh, thanks for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Take care.